Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week I'm in Milton Keynes. I'm pretty sure I'm sat in front of the applause button machine. I've no, never seen it before, so I can't swear to it. So if at some point you hear a burst of applause, I've lent on it or something. But I'm here with Phil Yates. Um, we're at the Championship League, but we're going to be discussing various issues, including uh, quite a few of your emails. But firstly, Phil, uh, congratulations to Ryan Day on winning the shootout. Uh, we keep hearing it's a lottery, but... I think if you look at the list of winners, and Ryan is on this list now, it takes a certain sort of player to win that tournament. Absolutely, yeah. Echo your sentiments. Congratulations to Ryan. He's a wonderful player who, over the last couple of years, remarkably, has had no success whatsoever, which, considering his talent, is extraordinary. I was told that before the shootout, he'd not reached the last 16 of a ranking event since the 2019 Gibraltar Open. Now that tells you two things, one, the way his form is slumped, and two, just how tough the circuit is. Because if Ryan Day can't reach the last 16 in two years, it just goes to show the, the level of competition. He's a really good player, and yes, you're right, he falls into the category of players who win the shootout. Maybe not one of the top 16 players, but someone who can play a very high quality game and who's got a lot of experience and a lot of know-how and savvy. I think two players, two types of players who can't win the shootout, really slow players I think it's virtually impossible for them to, to play properly at 10 seconds a shot certainly and I think that the second category is really low rank players or even amateurs in this case because a few of them went quite deep because the prospect of winning £50,000 and basically transforming not just their careers but their lives I think would be just too inhibiting I think it would be too much pressure for them to finally get over the line Yeah and I think also some players go a bit too negative and try and sort of defend, you know, almost like a six-point lead for, for half the match. Ryan Day made some breaks. He made a 67 in the final. So he sort of played it. I mean, he had some luck along the way. He could have lost to Joe Yulon, probably should have done. But he sort of played it like another frame of snooker. A massive for him. Um, I thought the event went, went really well. I was wondering, I think we all were, how it would go without a crowd because it's always been associated with that crowd. I thought they did a good job, Eurosport and Will Snooker playing in the effects made it as good as it could be that the, there was still drama um it was still that same kind of frenetic frenzied snooker at times um i do i, I will be honest I, i'm a bit sick of hearing about it shouldn't be a ranking event it's the fifth year now it's been a ranking event whatever your opinion and me and clive did a podcast when it was announced in 2017 we both were very skeptical about whether it should be but it is it is a ranking event and you know to keep hearing that after every match i just thought got a bit tiresome um end of the day it's, it's done Ryan Day a massive favour in the rankings I mean he was down to 53 in the end of season rankings you know it was unlikely he would have dropped off the tour but not impossible Michael White another former winner of the shootout who's a, a wonderful talent also from Wales 
he dropped off the circuit if he can Ryan could have done mm. so thankfully he's not going to do that now and not only has he won £50,000 winning the shootout he's also going to be in the champion of champions next season which is £12,500 guarantee if the prize money doesn't change and he's also going to be in the players championship as well which I think is another £10,000 guaranteed so it was a very lucrative exercise for him in terms of the rankings I'll say this I've got no problem with it being a ranking event at all because it is simply in isolation I think if there were more than one shootout then I'd have a problem my slight problem would be the way that the prize money is distributed towards the end you get to the, the semi-finals and you're on 8,000 ranking points you, you win it you're on 50,000 and obviously in a normal event you've got to win a, a best of 11 or a, a best of 17 best of 19 whatever in this the difference between getting to the semi-finals and winning it isn't that great and yet the, the ranking points are but generally I've got no problem with it being a ranking event because as I say there is only one every year yeah, I've got no problem with people thinking it shouldn't be one or thinking it should be one. I just got fed up of hearing after every match it's been talked about. It's been it's it's the fifth year now it's been a ranking event. We know it is one. Let's just get on with it. I'm sure that Barry Hearn's argument would be it's a ranking event to try and attract bigger names. If you attract bigger names, you attract a bigger sponsor, you attract more TV sales, and therefore you attract more money into the sport that ultimately benefits the players. But that's an argument that I'm sure will continue. I'm just not. I'm just going to sit it out because I'm not that interested anymore in it. But I am interested, of course, in our emails from our listeners. Dave Tyndall, regular correspondent, he says, uh, having only got seriously back into snooker in the last year, it meant I'd never actually watched the snooker shootout before. I tuned in very briefly once, but found the raucous, ribald atmosphere akin to the final days of Rome or a night out at Spearmint Rhino. <laughs> this, fe- this felt a bit much, given that I'd grown up watching safety battles between Eddie Charlton and Rex Williams at the Hushed Crucible. But now that I'm heavily into snooker again, I watched it properly this time, and boy, I was absolutely hooked. From the nuances of the tactics, to the ultra-fast cloth, to seeing so many players in a short space of time, I found the whole thing totally absorbing, a sort of pot black on acid, but in a good way. Dave then, and if you regular listeners know, Dave recreates various tournaments on his own table, and he's done this, and we'll try and get to that later on. But that's interesting, isn't it? Because that's someone who, for whatever reason, has sort of zoned out of snooker for a while. And like he says, he's a bit of a traditionalist. Clearly, he's grown up watching the, you know, the proper stuff, but he obviously held some sort of appeal. Pretty much everything Dave said, I wholeheartedly agree with. I went to the first shootout to commentate on it, and I had really mixed, mixed feelings. After a few frames, a few matches... I realised I actually enjoyed it. The one thing I never enjoyed about the shootout was the crowd, I have to say that. I think this year was the best shootout I've ever seen because the crowd weren't involved. Now, I've got no objection to the crowd being there. We love to see crowds there, but it wasn't the noise that got me. It was the repetition. You know, those chants on particular colours. It got tiresome on the Thursday. By the Sunday, you were ready to sort of explode with, you know, (laughs) you you were that irascible. I agree with Dave. I think the actual snooker itself is really entertaining because there are so, there are so many different variations to frames. Look at the one four two from Mark Allen. Mm. Who would have thought, when the tournament started all those years ago, that someone could make a total clearance of one hundred and forty two with a minute or so to spare? It was a phenomenal achievement. So yeah. I think the tournament's got a lot of merit. There's a lot to adapt to. I mean, the referees, I think, did a good job overall because, obviously, it's different rules to what they used to. Um, I got caught out in commentary on that Sam Craigie business, you know, when he fouled at the end. I, you know, you're so used to... We, we do week in, week out on Eurosport and, and other channels 
you know proper snooker and suddenly you're, you're thrown into that and and yeah it threw me that did of course it went to a blue ball shootout because he didn't hit a cushion with the red anyway let's continue morgan knock uh, without wanting to go over the ranking or not debate thank you morgan uh, i think the consensus is that it's just good fun and it's great to see some of the lesser known players getting on tv the poignant thing in my household is that i can get my wife to look up from a phone for 10 minutes at a time and buy into the stories of the players as there's so many, and she doesn't have to get involved for very long. Well, that's certainly true if, if for, for people with short attention spans. It's, it's ideal, isn't it? And Liam Sandbrook said, um, also on the shootout, I really enjoyed it. Great coverage as ever by the Eurosport team, which is now the home of snooker, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you, Liam. Uh, I would like to ask you, would the final of the shootout be better as a best of three? They're playing for 30 grand, after all, 50 to the winner and 20 for the runner-up. Well, Phil, of course, there was there was uh, actually a forerunner to this event, wasn't there? And they did make the... It was a one-frame knockout, but I think the final was best of three. It was a one-frame knockout, conventional snooker. And I was writing for the Grimsby Evening Telegraph at the time, and the tournament was in Stoke. And I well remember that a friend of mine and a friend of yours as well, Dave, Ray Edmonds, mm. beat Steve Davis, and it was big news in the Grimsby paper. And they wanted 20 paragraphs. And I thought, well, OK. <laughs> so how do you write 20 paragraphs about one frame? But in the end, with the quotes and stuff, it was quite well, easy. He could talk quite well, couldn't he? He could. Yeah, yeah he could. And he'd just beaten Steve Davis, mm -hmm. so he was, uh, he was more than happy to speak. And we got the Steve Davis quote as well. The final also featured a, a Grimsley player, Mike Hallis, who lost mm -hmm. to Darren Morgan. I actually liked that tournament. The only thing I didn't like was the fact it was the one-frame shootout for the best-of-three-frame final. If you're going to go all the way with an event like that I think you just keep it as it is yeah I agree because it's, it's all we were saying best of three what if it was 2-0 that would seem even worse wouldn't it mm. you know if it's best of three you want it to be one inch and then you have a decider point is you have a decider you have one frame and it, it's the same challenge I guess in every round so I, I don't think that will uh, that will change uh, we're going to go we're going to delve into some other issues now now we had last week myself and Michael um, who's not been sat by the way he's just, he's just not with us here Milton Keynes um, we talked about various myths in the snooker world and we've got a lot of emails about that we're going to go over that next week so if you've sent one in about that we'll be discussing it next week but uh, James Wan writes he says which player in history would you like audiences not to forget about and why I'm talking about the less celebrated players who are still fantastic in their own way so I guess he doesn't mean obviously the O'Sullivan's the Hendry's he's talking about players who maybe didn't win big titles but were sort of uh, figures worth knowing about. I mean, one I thought about, and we've, I've spoken about him before on the, on the podcast, is Cliff Wilson. Now, um, I've been, for some reason on YouTube, uh, various, various shot of the championships and hot shots from BBC and ITV in the 80s keep appearing. He always features in every one of them because he used to play basically the sort of, not necessarily Judd Trump shots, but not far off actually, exhibition shots at various times in matches. I always think with those shot of the championship things, the context isn't always apparent. You know, you, you can play a what looks like a fantastic shot that doesn't matter because you're 18 nil up. It's not the same as being 50 each in a frame. But he was an incredible figure. He uh, he stopped playing, didn't he, when he was young? He stopped playing for about 15 years. He, he um, I think, just lost interest or there wasn't a sort of professional game to go into then. Turned pro late in life. I mean, you knew him quite well, Phil. Great character. Absolutely, yeah. And he got a, a tremendous outlook on life. He was also um, a shop steward mm. at the, the local steelworks where he was, and his politics aligned to mine also. Um, he was just a genuinely good bloke um, and a great player. One thing you don't hear in snooker is about a player being ahead of their time, mm. but Cliff really was ahead of their time. If he was a young man now, he would make a fortune. Mm. He was a phenomenal potter who played the game very aggressively at a time when it was played conservatively with a small C mm. and he was not a conservative in any way with a, a big C either mm. um, I, I felt sorry for him in that respect because he must have realised 
when he turned pro that his better years were behind him and yet he still did pretty well he played at the Masters and he won the World Seniors Championship as well playing yeah. someone who was his antithesis Eddie Charlton in the final Charlton should have beaten him he didn't Cliff won 5-4 and then immediately afterwards again it was at Trenton Gardens in Stoke and immediately afterwards they played um, the World Trickshot Championship which was recorded for for future viewing and he played some wonderful trick shots in that absolutely brilliant and it made you realise just what a talented player he was he beat Ronnie didn't he the, the, Ronnie's first year in the UK I think because Ronnie won it the second year he won the title first year Cliff Wilson beat him and he was half blind as well that's the other thing I mean Joe Johnson he played him in the, in the, in the World Amateur and uh, he said you know he couldn't see but he also couldn't miss <laughs> well I think he was I mean, no way was he down the, the centre of his his chin were the cue. I mean, he was all over the place with that. You know, he was very dominantly eyed because, as you say, the one eye was completely defective. Uh, very good uh, amateur career, as you say, with the World Amateur Championship. And he did beat Ronnie, yes. And that was a big shock at the time because we all knew Ronnie was going to be extra special. Um, and when Cliff beat him, he came up and he tried to sort of act as though, well, you know, so what really? You know, he's only a kid, I should mm. beat him. But I think he knew that that was one of his best results. So, do you have a, a player who you think people should know more about and maybe they don't? There's so many who warrant remembrance. I'll go for one really left-field player, purely and simply because it's a good way of telling quite an interesting story. This guy wasn't any good. He had no results <laughs> at all to speak of. But he was from South Africa called Robbie Grace. Nice. And his great calling card was something I really liked, actually. When you watch snooker nowadays... When someone has a fluke or they're lucky with a, a kiss or whatever, they always apologise. Yeah. And you know they don't mean it. Completely phony. Yeah. Well, and, and the point is, no one's criticising people for doing that because that's the convention. But no one really feels in their heart of hearts, I want to apologise for that. Maybe, maybe Karen Wilson at the end of that epic yeah. World yeah. semi-final. He did feel bad. That's he did feel bad, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was. But generally speaking, they don't feel bad. Robbie Grace just completely removed of that convention. He didn't only not apologise, he actually laughed in people's faces when he had a fluke. And it was <laughs> Take so, it a bit far. It was so yeah. amusing, it really was. This guy, he looked a little bit like the, uh, the butler at the Rocky Horror Show. He had long hair, but not, not all on top. Um, and he could pot a good ball. So I'd like to see uh, Robbie around now, but obviously it's, uh, it's not going to be the case. So there's him. And there's also actually um, another South African who was a serving member of the South African uh, military forces who used to take his uh, leave to coincide with the qualifiers of Blackpool, a guy called Francois Ellis. So those two are interesting characters. Well, they live on in Q-Tracker, as, as all snooker players do. You want to look them up. Ryan Freeman writes, I presume this has happened at least once in snooker history, but can you recall anyone ever scoring 147 points in a frame without it being a maximum? So, for example, making a 40 break, then missing a red, then later coming back and making a 107 break using all reds and blacks. Strangely enough, someone else asked me this. Tom Anderson from Eurosport, one of the top top people there, um, listens to the podcast. He asked me this very same question, and I said, of course it's happened, and I couldn't find any examples, but it, there must be somewhere a frame score, one four seven nil without a maximum. You know, I can remember seeing it, undoubtedly. I can't remember who yeah. it was. But, you know, maybe we should defer to the... The lord of all these things, Chris Downer, who would probably know. Tom Anderson, of course, you didn't give him his full title there. Tom, Mr. Snooker Anderson. We call him Mr. Snooker. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's affectionate. Um, right. Graham Turrell. He says, you may have picked up on the ongoing Snooker's Biggest Loser Weight Loss Challenge between Sean Murphy and Phil Seymour, the Master of Ceremonies. 
which is raising lots of money for charitable causes. This got me thinking more about the subject of snooker players and their weight. While snooker is undoubtedly a mental as well as physical sport, from my own personal experience of playing, maximum break of 35, uh, th then after a few frames I do often find I start to feel both physically as well as mentally drained. Although I'm a little south of both Messrs Murphy and Seymour current weights, it's fair to say I could nonetheless do with losing a pound or ten myself. What do you guys think about the need for general fitness and being sensible about weight management among top snooker pros? Don't ever remember really hearing it being discussed before, and certainly not during commentary on matches. I think there may very broadly be three groups of players in this respect. Those who don't seem to have any obvious challenges with their weight, so players like Trump, Selby, Robertson, Lazowski in the modern game, and someone like Steve Davis or Stephen Hendry from eras before. Those who undergo pretty serious fitness regimes, the two that spring to mind most easily are obviously Ronnie O'Sullivan and Peter Ebden. And then we have the third group of players who, shall we say, and I say this with all due respect, carry a slightly larger frame. I'm thinking of modern players such as Steve Maguire, Mark Allen, Sean Murphy himself, and dare I even suggest John Higgins currently. Do you see any correlation between a player's weight or fitness and their ability to succeed in today's game? I guess many of the tournaments are short frame format, so perhaps it's less of an issue there. Certainly likes the World Championship with often two eight frame sessions a day in the second week are surely more of a test of a player's physical stamina. Well, I, I'm going to sort of not. Sort of, I'm going to leave the names of players out because I don't want to get involved in talking about you know people's physical appearance. I think there is something in though certain stamina aspect. You know, the World Championship it's a long tournament, tournament, and I mean when Terry Griffiths won it, he said he lost two stone over the course of the tournament because he just put so much into it. Um, I think fitness absolutely does help. You look at Ronnie, obviously, you know he's in, the, in his mid forties, doesn't doing all his running. Trump is, is a fit young guy, uh, Neil Robertson is, and they're winning tournaments. So I think, and Sean Murphy said himself, you know, he felt he feels that he's played his better snooker when he's been slimmer. When he got married, he lost a lot of weight to, to look good in the pictures, and felt felt that his game was coming together at that point. So it's interesting, I think, this because we don't like. There's no sort of if you're a tennis player, you have a, like a dietitian who, who does all of that stuff for you. It's not an ain't snooker, um, but I think in general, you know, you've got to think. The more physically fit you are, the more energy you would have. The, the, in theory, the better you would do, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Being fitter helps over a, a lengthier match. There's also a, a pragmatic reason as well, and I can attest to this from personal experience. When I was playing a lot, and I started to put on weight in my thirties uh, and my late twenties as well, actually, your 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 reach reduces the the, the bigger you become. And so consequently, you need the rest more. And if you're not particularly good with the rest, that has a knock-on effect. I mean, you know, they say people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And at the moment, with my weight, I'm holding a boulder in Kew Gardens. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's uh, in the botanical gardens. I mean, it's uh, look, I, I've been overweight for many years now. And when I have occasionally lost weight, I've lost three stone on one occasion, put it back on. I've currently lost a, a stone since Christmas and there's no doubt about it even doing what I do you feel the benefit so with those guys they must feel the benefit definitely having said that though especially in lockdown and I'm not making excuses for myself by the way although I need them <laughs> in lockdown it is difficult yeah. to have the proper diet and certainly the proper exercise to maintain weight loss definitely well I mean I, 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 last year I put on a stone and a half um, during the lockdown um, you know, I used to go to the gym, which is now shut. You can do other things, but when the weather's bad, it's not so easy. Um, and I think for snooker players, you know, the, as we know, Phil, the, sort of the, the lifestyle at a snooker tournament 
it's not you're not necessarily have the options to eat that healthy actually you know yeah. you're not they don't roll out all the sort of stuff that you know a top athlete might might eat it tends to be either meat or vegetarian option and it's one or the other um and certainly there's a culture of eating late as well um and there has been a culture of drinking as well over the years and that's just part of the sort of snooker culture it's up to each individual player a lot of the players that were mentioned there are doing really well actually they're doing really well they're winning tournaments um, you know, the Ambing Tao's got a, quite a big guy, isn't he? he? Just won the Masters. Um, so, but it's a, it's individual choice. I think what what I will say is I, I don't think there's any harm in players looking at this area and thinking, is this an area that might give me an advantage? So if I do try and become fitter, is that going to help me? I think they'll find it will do. Just walking back last night, we walked back to to our rooms. We have to go up a couple of flights of stairs. I was quite I was quite tired after the second flight, and I know for a fact a year ago I wouldn't have been. Yes. But just because I'm carrying more weight now, um, yeah. so I think certainly when you look at the World Championship, I think there is possibly a correlation there. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no doubt in my mind there is, and people are always looking for edges, aren't they? Mm. Uh, they're looking for maybe a, a sports psychologist or a, a different uh, feral on your queue or a new queue, which is becoming more and more prevalent on the circuit. Players are changing queues more and more often, and so weight loss is undoubtedly a good thing. But even if it isn't a good thing for your snooker, it's going to be a good thing for you in general. So why not do it? Yeah. Um, the, the most depressing thing I, I found was that I've lost a stone since uh, January the first New Year's resolution and all that. And I came here and um, someone actually noticed, and I said, "Yeah, I've lost a stone since uh, since January the first And this particular person was of a younger generation, and they didn't know what a stone was. <laughs> that was that was the yeah. most depressing. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, that's <laughs> as you say, quite depressing. Uh, John Bennett. Now, of course, as we record this, Judd Trump has just equaled Stephen Hendry's career centuries tally, seven seven five, and by the time this goes out, we'll probably have beaten it because he's playing in the Championship League today. John says. Uh, Moving on to the century equaling achievement of Judd Trump and, St and Stephen Hendry, looking at Q Tracker stats revealed some interesting comparisons. We always talk about much more snooker being played today, but Stephen has played roughly 3,800 more frames to achieve the same number of centuries as Trump. Trump gets a century every 10.4 frames on average, Hendry every 15 frames, O'Sullivan every 10.8 frames. I know we always try to compare stats to prove our preferred point, but I think the best players of any era would be among the best players of any other era, and we should just appreciate the players we have. I totally agree with that. I mean, people will... I've said this before, but people will try and pick the stat that kind of backs up their point. I think what Trump's doing is incredible. It doesn't matter how many tournaments there are. The reason he's making so many centuries is because he's winning so many matches. If he lost the first round of every tournament, he wouldn't be making so many centuries, um, and he's making far more than anyone else. So that just shows you that he is a... I mean, you look at the way he plays, you know... What, what he likes to do is get the balls open as quickly as possible and because he's such a good potter, even if he's lost position at some point, he'll keep it going. And he's got this intensity to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And I think um, you can compare all, all you want, but you should just, as, as our correspondent John says there, just sort of value you know, what you're watching. As we've discovered over the last 12 months, you can never say anything is certain in life. But if Judd Trump retains his health, and he retains his enthusiasm, he will smash every record in the book, apart from the seven world titles of Stephen Hendry, because I don't think he's going to win eight. I just don't think that. But all of the other records, he will absolutely obliterate. Prize money, centuries. He might even catch up with Ronnie's maximums. I don't know about that, but certainly in terms of prize money and centuries, he's going to be so far ahead when he finishes. The guy, look, he's 31 years of age now. If he retains his health, as I said, he's going to be playing to a high level until at least 45. And so you've got to think, he could possibly challenge, possibly, 1,500 
to even 2,000 centuries. He is phenomenal. People don't realise how good Judd Trump is. To me, he's already in the top five of all time, without question. Okay, people say, yeah, but he's only won three Triple Crown events. He treats every tournament the same, which he should do. The, the rate he wins tournaments at is phenomenal. The way he plays is phenomenal to watch. His ability to pod balls, phenomenal, and build breaks. But also, when he wants to, his safety is extraordinary. And his ability to lay snookers and get out of them, I think, is right up there with the very best. Yeah, and listen, we're, we're anoraks here, so you know this is back in the glass houses thing, but there is a little bit too much focus for me on stats in sport. If you pay you know, your 40 quid, or whatever it is, to go along to the Masters, and you see Judd Trump turn it on and play amazing stuff, you're going to go home buzzing from it. You're not going to go home saying, well, he's only won three Triple Crown events, as if the, as if the whole afternoon didn't count. You know, you people experience sport as an emotional thing, actually, rather than a statistical thing, even though the stats are interesting. They underpin what you've actually seen with your own eyes. Um, and like you say, he's so far in front of everyone else at the moment, that, that intensity to want to win everything is impressive. He didn't have to come to the Championship League. Partly he's come, I think, to make the centuries. And that's the other thing with Trump. I think he's very aware of all this, all these stats and, and what he's doing. Tweeted this morning how proud he was to, to equal Henry's record. Um, I get the feeling Ronnie actually is not that interested in that. Ronnie wants to find a sort of equilibrium where he enjoys playing snooker. Uh, maybe at the end of his career, look at all the, all the achievements. I'm not sure he's as bothered as maybe Judd is. But it's good. It's just, you know, he's just a joy to watch. And like you say, you know... Age also is on his side. He's only 31. He's equaled Hendry at the age of 31. Ronnie did it when he was 39. He did it at the Masters on Hendry's birthday, I think. <laughs> and obviously Hendry was 43 when he retired. So time's on his side. He, like you say, the, the world is kind of his oyster a little bit. Absolutely. And, and of course, a lot of the top players now, a lot of them, when he's 40, will be well into their 50s. So unless there's a wave of players coming through to challenge him, he could have an easier time, mm. theoretically, in the next 10 years than he's got at the moment. Let's move on to Don Pixley. He's asked three questions. Uh, the second one, Phil, involves Grimsby, so you'll, you'll be all across that after you're, you're talking about being a correspondent for the local paper. Uh, so anyway, first one, Sean Murphy. How does a player as good as him have so many tournament, early tournament exits on his CV? And because of these, can he be classed as one of the sport's all-time greats? I make it that in ranking tournaments, he's suffered 44 first-round exits and 15 in non-ranking events. Add to these 33 second round departures in ranking and five in non-ranking events. That's getting on for nearly 100 defeats in the first or second round, which seems a huge number for a player who's in daddy class. On the flip side, now it says he's back 13 ranking titles. I don't think he has. I think he's won nine, actually. But anyway, I think maybe he's including the, the minor ranking events, the PTCs as well. And 11 non-ranking crowns. He's reached another 24 finals, both ranking and non-ranked tournaments. Is there another player on the circuit with such a diverse record? And why is it that, why is that you two think? Can you see him ever winning another world title, given he hasn't made it past the second round since 2015 when he lost in the final? Well, I could see him winning another world title, absolutely. I think Sean's a fantastic player. Um, he has lost a lot of early matches. I think recently, the last couple of years, you know, he moved to Ireland. He had a lot to get used to with that. He, he had a bad season, not last season, the season before, a terrible season. Put it right last season because he won a couple of ranking events. This season, he's struggling with the quarantining and can it, if, he, if he goes back to Ireland he can't practice if, obviously if he stays here in the UK he can't see his family so he's in a cash 22 situation there but here's the thing wouldn't you rather win 10 or 12 ranking events in your career and lose a load of first rounds than just get to a load of quarter finals and win a couple of tournaments isn't it better to actually have the trophies well Sean has been on record himself 
a saying, the one thing I hate is the word consistency. Yeah. I think he prefers to be a winner and then you know, a first-round loser rather than two quarter-finals. Uh, that's the way he's thinking about it. But his career, you know, has always been in peaks and troughs. He won the PTC Grand Final, didn't he, that year? And then the following year, he couldn't defend the title because he didn't qualify. Now, you think a player of Sean Murphy's class, surely he would get enough points to finish in the top 32 on the PTC list, but he didn't. And that was a while ago now. Definitely the move to Ireland and the COVID pandemic combined have complicated things for him. There's no doubt about that. I agree, he could definitely win a world championship again. He can definitely win world ranking titles again. But I would also agree that he is inconsistent and he has suffered far too many early round defeats for me, considering just how good he is. He's also lost pace with his two great contemporaries, who are Mark Selby and Neil Robertson. They're all basically the same age, 37 or 38. Obviously, they've moved forward the last couple of years. I think Mark's, I think they're both on 19 ranking titles. Um, Sean is back, I think, I think on nine ranking titles. So he's kind of lost pace with them. He's, you know, we know he's a world champion, Masters UK, and, and plenty of others besides champion champions. But you know, the, I think you look at kind of the players who you measure yourself against, and he has slightly uh, fallen back uh, uh, compared to them. Now he won two ranking events last season, so that's a, that's a good season. Crucible, he, he's lost a few first rounds there, but you know he's not not alone in that. The fact is, he's won the world title. He's been in two finals uh, as well. I definitely wouldn't wouldn't say he can't win it again. I mean, I think that would be ridiculous, actually. Um, you never know. But, yeah, but of course, that, that's the thing as well. One big win can transform everything, can't it? I think this year's World Championship, you can... Or, sorry, last season's World Championship, you can pretty much write off because his great friend mm. and manager, Brandon yeah. Parker, had just died and he recently returned from the funeral and he, he wasn't right, he wasn't there for understandable reasons. I commentated on his match against Nopon Sankham in the first round. He won the first frame. Second frame, he missed the easiest ball imaginable. Should have been 2-0 up. And from that point onwards, Sankon cleared up one each. And then from that point onwards, um, the, the, the Thai player pulled away playing some nice snooker. I think you can discount last season's World Championship. And I think eventually, Sean will return to form. There's no doubt in my mind. The other part of the question was, can you consider him an all-time great? Well, I think it all depends on how many players you would say you could include in an all-time great category. He's certainly in the top 15, I think, of all time. Um, but again, it's a subjective thing. Would you say he's in the top 10? Arguable. Maybe, maybe not. But the point is, he's had a phenomenal career. And if he stopped now, he's contributed so much to the game for two reasons. One, when he won the World Championship, it was a phenomenal story. Really was. And he played brilliantly to win it as well. To win it as a qualifier, the first since Terry Griffiths, in 1979 great for the game and also over the ensuing years what is it now 16 years since he became world champion he's been right up there at the very top of the ambassadorial mm. table off table with sponsors with guests even when he's done the occasional commentary absolutely terrific so he's contributed an awful lot to the game already yeah, and I think he'll always be involved in it, won't he? When I mean, it's a long way away yet, yeah, but when he does finally retire, I think we'll see plenty of him because uh, Snooker's in his blood. Uh, Don Pixley's second point, you'll like this one, Phil. He said, on the subject of players having other jobs, quite a few years ago, I managed a bookies in Lincolnshire, and I was told I was, ha I, and I was told I was having someone come in to help me one day. It turned out to be Grimsby snooker player Carl Broughton. 
He was around his prime back then, late 90s, but obviously not earning enough from just playing snooker. I remember his sponsored motor in the car park just in front of the shop, which had his name plastered down the side. He seemed a pleasant lad, but I recall asking him what it felt like on those occasions when he was sat in his chair for ages watching opponents on sizeable breaks and whether he would be desperately hoping for them to miss in order to get back to the table. His reply was, oh, you just sit there and admire their terrific play. I wasn't convinced by this reply, nor am I still all these years later. <laughs> you knew Carl. Very well, yeah. Nice lad. Um, because I used to write for the Grimsby paper, uh, and they were always interested in Carl, yeah. Well, actually, we were talking about this at home the other day because uh, my sister was saying, back in the day, you didn't send you copy through emails. You had to get up early, particularly for an evening newspaper, to make their first edition, and read it out to a copy taker. And I always used to say to this copy taker, Carl with a K, Broughton, and Sean, S-E-A-N, yeah. story. Yeah. Uh, and this used to drive her mad because she was trying to get to sleep in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. across, across, the, uh, across the landing. And every morning, all she could hear was Carl with a K, Broughton. He, he was a good player. Um, the, the problem is, there are so many good players now, and I think Carl was in that category where he was tortured almost because he knew how good he was in practice. But he wasn't quite good enough to make the big bucks. But he's like me, actually, because before I came into snooker for five years, I was a, a manager and an assistant manager of a, a, a betting shop, worked for Ladbrokes. And it's nice to know that Carl actually did a, a shift as well. I never knew that, actually. That would have been a, a good story for the old Grimsby Evening Telegraph. You missed that one. I think there's a lot of players in general, not just move, sort of winding it out. There's a lot of players who are the best player in their club. So to everyone else in the club, they look like world beaters. Oh, I can't beat so-and-so. But of course, you then, if you're going to make it in professional studio, you have to beat the best players in the world. And you get found out sometimes. Um, and, you know, we get... You have exceptional players, you have very good players, you have good players, and you have not so good players. And you can be a good player, but, you know, not near the level of the, of the, the sort of two upper band players. And there's been a lot of players like him who've given it a go, had a few results here and there, but probably knew possibly from quite early on, I'm not actually going to be a world beater. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that he, he got well inside the top 100 in the world rankings tells you an awful lot about just how good he was because to do that, you've got to be a, an exceptional player. Just going back to Grimsby, we've just talked about stats and stuff. One of the great stats for me is this. We always talk about snooker hotbeds, you know, London, Manchester and all that. Now, Grimsby, relative to those big cities, is quite a small place. And yet they produced so many really, really good players what about this? In 1975, that little town had the British junior champion, Mike Hallett, it had the English amateur champion, Sid Hood, and it had the world amateur champion in Ray Edmonds. Three massive titles in the amateur game, won by three different players, all from the same town. Yeah, and uh, but I've sort of said this before, in, in, I've told this story now, this is the third time I've told it, but Matthew Syed, in his book where he sort of questions... Uh, the nature of talent and his argument is it's all about practice it's called Bounce very good book and he said that um, he lived in Reading when he was growing up and all the best table tennis players in the UK were from Reading and he said the National Training Centre for Table Tennis was also in Reading mm -hmm. so you know the two go together you need you need that sort of nucleus where you can improve you know you improve by playing players better than you that's what I was saying you know you can be the best player in your club that's not going to make you improve if you're beating everyone. You need to be playing, you know, other other top players, and you do get. You're quite right. Certainly in the UK, these little hotbeds, and for whatever reason, that Grimsby Scunthorpe kind of area in Lincolnshire, 
has been one of them. Anyway, uh, we'll move on to Dom's final point. He says, lastly, I'm a bowls writer. Yes, there are a few of us around, but not many. And I wanted to get your chap's perspective on bowls and why you think it hasn't attracted as much attention as snooker and, say, darts over the years. There's a stereotypical old people's image of the sport that clings to it like a limpet and is still holding it back. But in the recent World Indoor Championships, there were plenty of good youngsters in action, male and female. The reigning world champion Mark Dawes is in his 30s. Snooker's not exactly full of young stars and can be pretty pretty boring to watch at times, depending on who's playing. While bowls can be quite lively, especially if you have an explosive player playing. But snooker's status has always been far higher than bowls has been, although bowls have got as much going for it as snooker, in my opinion. What do you think? Well, they're different sports, aren't they? Um, I mean, you know, for years, Embassy, the tobacco sponsors, they sponsored the World Snooker, World Darts and the World Bowls Championships. Um, I think indoor bowls is quite a nice game to watch, but does it? I mean, look, Dom, Dom and I bet the measy bowls right. Does it have the variance of snooker? Um, every frame of snooker can be different. There's also, I think, time to get into the human drama of it, get to know the personalities of the players. Um, you do, you've done ten pin bowling, of course, Phil. So you're, you're maybe you're an expert in this field. Well, yeah. <laughs> quite recently, actually, I did the uh, Weber Cup for the um, for Matru. It was the USA against Europe, 10-pin bowling. I'd never, ever seen any level of 10-pin bowling competition. And suddenly, I'm the lead commentator <laughs> on the most important event in the world. Yes. I felt as though I'd got real imposter syndrome. Mm. I did loads and loads of research for it. I didn't know what to expect. The 10 players were absolutely a delight to work with. The standard was terrific, and I really, really enjoyed the job. And... Hopefully, if Matchroom employ me again, I'll be doing it again this year. I think you can't really compare sports, but what I think you can say is that all sports are linked by the same thing. They fall victim to media stereotypes. There's no, yeah. there's no doubt about that. No doubt. Um, and clearly, Bowles has fallen victim to the, the stereotypes just as Snooker has. I mean, you know, how many times do you hear? And when, I, when he used to do two ways on radio, particularly during the World Championship... You know, the amount of times, oh, you know, sign of a misspent youth, <laughs> you know, playing around in smoky billiard halls. It, it just really... Pasty re- face potters. Yeah, really <laughs> annoys you because it's not like that at all. But stereotypes are very, very difficult to get rid of. They just yeah. are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I'm not an expert in bowls. I quite enjoy watching it now and again. We used to know, uh, of course, Gordon Dunwoody and his wife Anne. They, uh, Gordon was a very well-known... Bowls writer and, and they, they ran the pressure at the, the Scottish Masters um, I mean it's still on the BBC I think isn't it it was on quite recently the World Championship so they have a certain profile um, the answer is Don we don't know you probably know better than us but um, let, you know good, good luck with it good luck with the Bowls tour Nigel Oldfield who uh, he's now a, very much a big noise in the World Snooker Tour he for a while ran the World Bowls tour they tried to do things like you know have a sort of colourful clothing and all that stuff and make the rink colourful they changed some of the the rules to try and speed it up but you know there's a one thing I will say is a, it's a sport I know with a big constituency of people who play um, the challenge obviously is getting new people involved and that's a challenge for any sport and I guess for that you maybe need more TV exposure uh, Ray Morgan writes under today's conditions surely the break off is plain ball top bread hang on I'll start again under today's conditions surely the best break off is plain ball top bread and it's beyond me why it's not used I agree with the advice given to Michael McMullen, this we were talking about this the other week, that no break is put break off is perfect. There are three advantages of the plain ball break off. You'll not hit the blue. It's highly unlikely you'll bring a red down for potting in middle pocket. It cuts down on possible reds that may pop out either side of the pack. On many occasions, Ronnie O'Sullivan has either hit the blue or has brought a red down, and he's the greatest of all time. 
I recollect that Mark Williams used the plain ball break-off to good effect in a German tournament a few years ago. Breaking off is supposed to give a player an advantage, but the way frames are either lost, big breaks are made from the break-off, is getting silly now. Is it just pig-headedness? It interests me this because the break-off is the only shot in a frame you know you'll have to in a match you know you'll have to play. You know at some point you've got to break off, obviously every other frame. And it does seem to go wrong a lot of times. I was talking to a player recently who said, oh, one of the problems is the referees, they all set the balls up differently. Well, that's maybe passing the buck a little bit. Um, but it, it, we do seem to talk about it more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're here now on the morning of the second day of Group 4 of the Championship League. And last night, Mark Williams was playing Mark Selby. And in their deciding frame, he came off the top cushion and just nestled into the, uh, nestled into the pack with the cue ball, which is, again, although break-offs are changing, is still very, very rare. I actually agree with that. I think it's if you come off playing ball, you're not going to cause an awful lot of damage. Okay, it might be the kind of break off where you're not really giving yourself a chance to to gain an awful lot. But having said that, you're not going to lose an awful lot. So maybe that is the way forward. The problem is, and it's not a problem, it's a very good thing. The reason the break off has got so much attention recently is because guys are so good at knocking in that first red and making a big break. People have always broke off in a similar way, but maybe the ethos was we weren't going to be as aggressive going for that first red, or certainly if you did, you're going to play a shot to nothing off it and go up into bulk. And it, the minimal effect of that wasn't really talked about. Now it's not a minimal effect. Quite often you see players knock a red in and make a, a sizable break, a frame winning break. So I think the reason the break off has got so much attention over the last year or two is because. Not the break-off itself, but what it can lead to, i.e. the other guy taking absolutely full advantage. Mark Wildman, another another great figure in the sport, he, he got invited one year to pop black as a, someone pulled out because he wasn't in the top 16, but he got called up. And of course, that was one frame. And he he told me, he said, he, I drew Steve Davis. And obviously, Steve, in any format then, was kind of almost unbeatable. And he, he thought, I'm not going to just play one shot. I'm not going to break off. If he puts me into break, I'm not going to break off, leave him a red and not get another shot. This is pop black great to be in it I want to sort of do myself justice so he said he spent about three weeks basically trying to perfect a break off where he got the cue all in behind the green it's the only shot he practiced for three weeks and eventually you know every time he did it he got him behind the green so they get down to play pop black and Steve Davis he won the toss and he put himself in so Steve breaks he gets Mark behind the green Mark of course plays one shot into the reds leaves him on that's it so it doesn't you know you can practice it all you want it doesn't always necessarily do any good but it does seem to be something that we're uh, we're talking about more and more and I think players pick up on that don't they and they're starting to think about certainly in like deciding frames how they're going to break off and you can't blame them for being cautious because the, the standard I was looking at this actually we're talking about Trump centuries there's 123 players Tour players have played this year. There's top-ups as well, but just the tour players. 123 players have played. Only 12 of them have failed to make a century. So that's 90% of the tour have made centuries. Now, you know, Phil, go back even 20 years, certainly 30, you would not have those numbers. The strength in depth is so good now that in any match, in any round of a tournament, you know, you're vulnerable from the break-off. You looked back in the day at players' centuries totals and even some of the, the recognisable players were around 15, 20 for their careers. Now, the 100th century break mark is, well, you know, it might be a, a one line in a commentary, but it's no great shakes. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's just a natural thing. Even there's tons of players who have made 200 centuries now. The game has definitely changed, no doubt about it whatsoever. Talking about break-offs, Dave, I've got to tell you this. I watched an exhibition when I was at university in Bradford at the Richard Dunn Sports Centre. 
and it was between Ray Reardon and Alex Higgins. And I can't remember what happened in the match overall, but the last couple of frames of this particular session, Higgins made a total clearance, then he broke off from the back in the next frame, <laughs> flew to red and made another total clearance. Mm. So how many pots is that? That's uh, 72 pots. 72, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Amazing. Let's end with Jack Wilson. This is quite a long email, but Jack's uh, taken the time to write it, so I will take the time to read it out. It says, first, all, first off, love the podcast. Found it a few months ago around the World Championship and has been a, been a subscriber ever since, as well as going back through your top tens and so on. I wanted to ask you about the event's calendar as it is now and if you think the scope for change. Historically, I'd watch the BBC events and a couple of others each year if the timing was right. However, during the pandemic, I've had the opportunity to watch pretty much everything through a combination of BBC Eurosport and Free Sports. I'm bound to say here, don't forget ITV4 as well. Um, <laughs> while it's been great and a well-needed distraction, it's got me thinking about the snooker calendar and if it's all a bit much. I started watching snooker back in the early 2000s as a child and have kept up with it since. The perfect blend of 80s and 90s legends battling against the new generation, bridged together by the likes of O'Sullivan, Higgins and Williams. This meant there were tons of big names and you always seemed to get new matchups and stories you wanted to see. Every tournament brought something new. However, recently, I'm feeling a bit burnt out and fatigued by it. It must be said this is partly by the pandemic, meaning so many events are back to back. But I feel as though, other than the Worlds and the Masters, most of the tournaments are blurring into one. I think there are many reasons for this. Most tournaments have similar structure. Every player plays in every one, presumably for financial reasons. Additionally, with Trump, Robertson and Selby dominating in recent years and looking like they will for a while yet, I feel it's going the way of tennis, where I feel I can skip whole events without missing anything. It's more about who won more events in the year out of Fedra, Djokovic and Nadal, without other players getting a look in and a little bit stale. With that in mind, do you think now, as we hopefully come out of the pandemic and get live crowds back, it might be time to refresh things? A couple of ideas I've had, a bit long, so you might want to do one at a time. Well, let's do that. Number one, limit the amount of events a player can enter each year. For example, each pro could enter up to two-thirds of the events each season with a set number of spaces for each tournament. That way we reduce the recurring matchups and Trump v Sullivan in a final feels special when it happens rather than something you expect to see multiple times a season. I feel it would also get some of the older players more engaged if they didn't feel pressure all the time. World's still open to all 128 players. Well, on that point, Jack, I think the problem with that is you'd be hit with a restraint of trade lawsuit pretty quickly because if you're telling players, you know, we've got 20 tournaments but you can only enter 15, I think that would be dismissed pretty quickly in a court of law um, and also I don't think it's actually desirable to say to Ronnie O'Sullivan or rather to say to example the promoter of let's say I know, the China Open we're not allowing Ronnie O'Sullivan to play in your tournament yeah. he'd be absolutely aghast completely <laughs> unworkable and you know you've got contracts with TV companies ITV BBC Free Sports Eurosport to name but four in the UK and if you said to them I'm afraid Judd Trump or Ronnie O'Sullivan or whoever can't enter your tournament because they're only allowed to play in two-thirds, uh, they would basically say, uh, no, I'm afraid not. We want the top guys. And to be honest, the guy there is just saying that the recurring matchups. In the 80s, Steve Davis absolutely dominated. In the 90s, Stephen Hendry dominated. Nowadays, you've got a hardcore of players who dominate, but they're not the same man. Um, and so I think you do have more variety in that regard than you used to have in the Alcyon days. Also, also, I think he said that all the tournaments have the same format. Well, that's it's not the case, is it now? I mean, there's more more variety of tournaments now than ever before. Best of sevens, best of nines, best of elevens. The, the, the length of matches is very different. What I will say, and I agree with completely, is that I don't think we have quite enough invitation events. 
quite often at the start of seasons we used to have uh, invitation events involving 12, 8, 16 men who were normally the, the elite and I think they were they were really really good the Benson Ninja's Harris Masters which was uh, one of the highlights of the, the year that's gone we used to have tournaments in Belgium and Germany that were invitation tournaments also in the Far East I'm not saying that they should outweigh the ranking events I'm not saying that at all but I think there's room for one or two more well this is Jack Wilson that's number, point number one point number two redistribute the prize money if you're limiting the amount of events redistribute it so every player gets more just for entering and the winners might get slightly less Done in such a way you could guarantee that if every player enters the maximum amount of tournaments they're allowed, they earn at least a living wage, and that's assuming they get knocked out in the first round all year. Well, that's obviously linked to the first point, which we've kind of <laughs> we've kind of dismissed. Um, I think again, it's commercial. Having big first prizes gives an event cachet. We've talked about maybe the shootout you mentioned, maybe the distribution of the top end is a bit top heavy. Um, there's an argument I think for giving people something for the first round. Um, but there's an also an argument against it because sport is cutthroat at the elite level and you know it's it's sort of incumbent on you to win matches to earn money. I do think I have to say though, I've seen matches on TV, um, and this is where it's not an even playing field. You'll see a match where say in a, in Home Nations, it finishes four three, it's been fantastic. But in the first round the player loses, they might have had three centuries and lost, they get nothing. And they've entertained us for a couple of hours on TV and they don't get a penny. I wonder if that's right. Um, but you know, there's only so much money in the pot, isn't there? That's the problem. I've got no problem with the distribution of uh, the prize money. I think, in fairness, in snooker, it's probably more equitable than it is in uh, tennis or most definitely in golf. Mm. In golf, they jet all around the world. And if you don't make the cut, and the cut most weeks is slightly less than half of the total field, if you don't make the cut, you receive nothing, and you've paid an enormous amount of expenses because you've got your hotel, your flight, and your caddy. Uh, whereas in snooker, the expenses, especially in this COVID season when people are coming to Milton Keynes, expenses are very limited anyway. Um, maybe, maybe the player should be given a small amount for losing in the first round. I'm not totally in agreement with that, but I'm not dead against it either. Uh, but certainly they should be given no ranking points. Uh, because if you don't win your first round match, you don't deserve any. At the shootout, they got £250, didn't they? But it didn't count towards the rankings. So maybe something along those lines to maybe just cover expenses. But professional sport really is survival of the fittest. Yeah. The best of the best because they're the best. Yeah. Um, and I think if you can't win a, a, a match or two, the other thing you don't want to promote is a culture of complacency where someone can rock up in all the ranking events, get 15, 20 grand for doing very little. You need to make it where players have the, the hunger to go for the big money, and that's what Barry Hearn has put into the circuit. Everyone has got the same opportunity because in the vast majority of events, they're coming in in the first round. And it's a level playing field. Look, look at those Home Nations events. You know, only the top 16 are kept apart in the first round. So you can have two really lowly ranked players. In fact, you could have two top-ups from the Q school playing each other in the first round to win £3,000. So even the protection that the top 16 used to receive in that regard is no more. I agree. The only thing I would say is that because there's no money in the first round, very often the players don't actually play their natural game in that first round because the World Championship especially, that first qualifying round, it's like it's nothing to 10 grand. So just imagine the pressure you're under and you know the, the inhibited way sometimes you play 
but you know like you say you know it's not a charity it is it is an elite sport and i think in some ways it is actually distributed more fairly than some other sports i'll run the last two points from jack together so he says number three try something new apologies if this has been tried but surely we could replace some of the smaller tournaments that are very similar with a couple of unique events. Snooker's so individually focused, why not pull a team element into some events, for example, an invitation doubles championship? Who wouldn't want to see an O'Sullivan-White team versus Selby Ebden? And number four, finally, carrying the team theme on, how about a week-long event that divides the top 14 to eight seeded teams of five players? Top eight are captains, pick one each from nine to 16, rank one from 17 to 24, etc., etc. There's then a knockout tournament. This sounds like Neil Folds' idea for the doubles. Uh, there's, there's a knockout tournament with, with teams instead of individuals. Bottom-ranked player playing the other bottom-ranked player on each team right through and finishing with the two captains playing each other. Could also add some bonuses for individual performances. He then says, as a disclaimer, I've never been what you would call a hardcore fan, but I wouldn't say it's a casual interest either, somewhere in between. So I might be talking rubbish, and none of these options are feasible for obvious reasons I can't see. Well, he's not talking rubbish, it's all ideas. One thing I would say in general is... You know, you say maybe you feel there are too many events. It's fine to not watch them all. Like, I, I, there's no other sport where I would tune into everything. I love watching cricket. I'll watch Test cricket. I probably won't watch any of the other stuff. Maybe the odd one-day thing if it's on. A lot of people in tennis will only watch the Grand Slams. Golf will only watch the majors. It does. You don't have to be like this. Podcast is obviously for quite hardcore snooker fans in the main. But you can just take a passing interest if you just want to watch the World Championship. That's fine. Whatever you want to watch. But you, what you've got to remember is. Everyone else in the sport is trying to make a living. The players are, and there's a big circus, and we're part of it, of people who want as many events as possible. Well, Jack, you're not talking rubbish, and we really appreciate your uh, your interest. I think the team event is a non-starter. I think it's just too complicated. I would certainly agree, though, that the World Doubles has got a place on the circuit. And even more so, I think a real good World Cup mm. would be great. Not like it is at the moment. Because the World Cup, essentially... Is an international doubles tournament. I think if they made the World Cup three-man teams, okay, it would dilute the amount of nations who could compete undoubtedly. You and, know, and, and be sold to. That's the problem, isn't it? It's to TV, TV companies around yeah, the world that could sell it to. Exactly. But I think if you had three-man teams uh, playing best of nines, I think that would really, really work. And I think although you'd lose something in terms of the number of teams you could have involved you'd gain an immense amount in the actual kudos of the tournament. I think a World Cup along those three-man lines would really work nicely. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of talk about doubles just generally on the circuit, so it may be that that's coming back. One thing I'd say as well is obviously Jack's talking primarily as a viewer on television, and it's true, a lot of those events can look the same, but I think what you have to remember as well is, you know, if you live in Belfast, this is in normal times when crowds can, can, can watch... If you live in Belfast, you get one chance a year to see the players up close. If you live in Berlin, you get one chance a year. To them, that event is the big event of the year. The German Masters is the big event. The Northern Ireland Open is the big event. Obviously, on TV, it doesn't matter where they're played, and we've kind of we've kind of seen that during the pandemic because they've all been played in Milton Keynes. But you've got to remember, for live audiences, you know these events are special. They might have the same format as other tournaments, but it's their one chance a year to go along and watch the guys in 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 person. And, and you know we're obviously hoping that that's gonna happen again very soon thanks for all the emails uh, there's various others we didn't get a chance to get to next week as I say we'll be looking at some of the myths you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com snookerscenepodcast at mail.com I feel bad now Phil because obviously you weren't here last week but I was telling the story of the Championship League where you were, t- you were attempting to sign off um, and you, were, you, you, you got stuck between saying goodbye and bye bye and you ended up saying goodbye bye so would you, would you like to sign off now with your catchphrase yeah, absolutely. 
Goodbye, bye. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.